You're listening to the Half Natty Podcast. We aim to bring together the enhanced and natural athletes of competitive bodybuilding and powerlifting with our host, Luke Miller. Hey guys, welcome back to the Half Natty Podcast. And back by popular demand, we have a returning guest um, in Nick Gloff. Um, y'all, y'all have heard him on the podcast before. Um, a lot of great feedback from the, re- the last episode. So uh, welcome back, Nick, uh, to the show and excited to hop on this topic today. Happy to be here. Glad to be back. So today we're going to be kind of discussing something that um, both of us have kind of seen in, in, in the industry as far as like some some faulty logic and in, in, in movement pattern discrepancies as far as like choosing movement patterns for certain for certain body parts, setting them up with them up within a program and a few other different aspects. So we're just going to kind of start to touch on this um, as far as like the program setup goes for people. So to start, I do want to kind of lay the framework of the thought process for how are we choosing movement for individuals? Obviously, we touched a little bit on the assessment piece last time. Um, but we can kind of rewalk through that if we need, and then also possibly some of the other considerations within movement selection for people. All right. So how do we want to go about it? Just general overview? General overview first, and then we'll dive into specifics. Okay. So to start off with, any basic assessment of looking at somebody's movement capabilities needs to start with just the general patterns that we're going to expect everyone should be able to do to get towards the goal in the first place. So general assessment is you're not going to find the greatest utility out of trying to do a direct pull from a PT or a chiropractic or athletic trainer setting, trying to take their movement testing that they would use and then bring it into what we would use for bodybuilding strength athletes, trying to use very, very specific tools for a more general approach, which is really as deep into the weeds as we can get with the bodybuilding strength training type stuff it's still a general adaptation. And in some arguments, building muscle and building strength is almost not even an adaptation because it's not something that needs to be attacked so specifically that you can only go through one avenue to have achieved it. So being that it's so general in the movement patterns that you can utilize to get there are pretty general. Having base capacity to be able to move within some general planes at every joint that's available is going to be the base of the assessments. And being that we're not doing anything sports specific, everything that we do is in a closed environment. We're able to control what we're doing. We get to choose the movement patterns themselves. Our assessments are going to be based generally off of exactly the movements we expect to be done. So an assessment for something like a squat pattern, a deadlift pattern, or a hip hinge, a vertical or horizontal push and pull and then everything that sits in the degrees between all of those and all the variations of them. If you were looking to assess somebody's ability to do them, you just have them do them. And that's the start. And then as soon as you can see whether or not their capacity is there, you regress or progress from the base to see whether or not they're going to match up to any of the most easily, the most easily accessible next steps in either direction for them to be able to effectively get to the adaptation we're looking for them to get. Which is a perfect overview of what we went over last time of, we basically broke down like the squat pattern and, and 
moving someone up and down the squat spectrum of choosing whether it's external, internal stability, the ability to reach in range for different people, et cetera. Um, one thing that I do want to kind of touch on today, just out of the specificity of the more competitive athlete, is choosing movement patterns with uh, prioritization with, of body part in mind. So, for example, um, one thing that we can we can always discuss is obviously choosing like quad quad dominant squat patterns versus something that's going to include more glutes. Um, I think that's a little bit over discussed, so I do kind of want to take this a little bit of a different direction. Um, and in choosing patterns for for training body parts that we commonly see are weak on individuals, um, and and then laying the framework for that. And I think a case study base by base would probably be the best way to go about this. Um, so to start, I think one that I get a lot of questions on um, is lat development, specifically choosing movements for lat development, and where does the hip hinge, where does the hip hinge lie? Um, within lat development and or overall back development as a whole. Okay. So I know that this is one that, that irks you. This, this <laughs> irks me quite a bit, actually. <laughs> There's a reason this one's in the show plan. <laughs> yeah. So to start off with the big one, because I know that you want to get right there in the first place, having – Right now, we're, we're fighting the good fight with some people that, that decide arbitrarily that we're going to memify certain exercises that have always been staples and turn them into something that they're not really, based off of very, very narrow views of what biomechanics they can understand about the movements themselves, and not really looking at it in the way I, I use an analogy for this, where... We're fighting the good fight with people that like to get their job security through obscurity. And the way that they go about the general way that they see things, whether or not they understand this, is almost like they're, they're one of the very few in the world that get to go explore the deep, dark depths of the ocean. They're in Mariana's Trench, okay? And they have a pen light. They can go as deep as they want, and they might go and see some things that nobody else has ever seen before. They could go to the darkest depths of the sea, find some cool stuff. But guess what? They only saw exactly what they could shine their pen light on. And they missed the entire rest of the ocean. So as deep and as dark as you can go, go as far into the ocean, as far as into the weeds, whichever analogy you want to use, if you go deep enough and you don't actually look at where you are in space and look around you for everything that actually comprises the full position from which you stand, you're missing things. And that's just the fact. So to make that apply directly into this specific topic, looking at the hip hinge, an RDL, a deadlift, a stiff leg, and then deciding that because biomechanically, what is it that is actually the prime mover? Things that cross your hip, obviously, because your hip is the moving joint. It's supposed to be the moving joint. But if we're only looking at what is a prime mover on an exercise, you're missing the fact that our entire body is an interweaving mesh of single joint systems that interact with each other, not only in the directions that the larger muscle groups that we look at as bodybuilders and we focus the most on because they're the most superficial and large, because those are the ones that are our targets for major movements. But we have 
muscles and attachments that go across every joint in every single direction. We are a meshwork of interwoven systems. If you don't have all of the systems aligning to do what all the systems are meant to do, you're not going to achieve the movement. If you were to try and do a stiff leg deadlift or an RDL or any sort of a hinge with any appreciable amount of load anywhere near your actual full capacity to load the pattern, and you tried to do so without respecting the fact that you have to have every single, every single, again, every single single joint system from your foot to the top of your neck doing what it's supposed to do, you're going to get crunched in half. The bar will not move. It'll get stuck to the ground and you're going nowhere. So this arbitration that a hip hinge pattern is only good for your hamstrings and your glutes is just utterly missing the point. Completely. Because as long as there is force being placed on you and you have to exert force into the environment to move the load that is actually acting on you, you need everything between the place where the load is being placed on you and where you affect your environment to be a conduit of the force that is getting traveled through in both directions. If each one of those single joint systems is not acting as a conduit that will effectively place the forces where it's supposed to redirect stop forces or exert forces in the directions it should, it doesn't work. It's a non-starter. So to squash it up front, hip hinges are a back developing exercise. They necessarily have to be. Okay, and here's why. Okay, so maybe you can make the argument that they aren't the best for developing the back directly, which is true because of the fact that you're in a position where you're not going through repetitive concentric and eccentric phases under load with all of the muscles that actually comprise the back from the base of the spine to the top of your neck. That is true. You're not taking your lat from a fully lengthened to a fully shortened position. You're not really taking it through a large portion of that range of motion. You're not taking your mid traps, your lower traps, your upper traps, your rhomboids, any of them, your teres, none of those muscles are going through a considerable amount of their contractile range of motion under both concentric and eccentric load. They're not, it's just not the case. Primarily, they're under an isometric contraction where I'll even add a caveat to that because that's not exactly how I see it. Because in the reality of the situation, if it was an isometric, by definition, then none of those joints would move. Which they have minimal movement during, during the hip hinge. Yeah. So if it were an, a true isometric, then we would expect that there would be from rep to rep, from the start to finish of every rep, the degrees, if we were to measure between every single spinal segment, which is going to be really the major thing that we're looking at for what is actually getting exerted through the back. If you look at every single spinal segment and you try to use a software or something, or even just get your goniometer out and try to figure out what the degree of change from the start to finish of every rep and then the repetition of each rep, and then look at the degree through the range of motion that you moved and then place that as rep by rep by rep, looking at where the actual degrees of change have happened no rep is going to be exactly the same. 
the degrees of motion are going to change throughout the start to finish of every rep. Even if from the outside looking in, you're not going to perceive it. It may feel to you, the person that's doing it, that it's exactly the same throughout. You might, and if you're a skilled lifter, it should feel somewhat like that. Until you get to the point where you're pushing on very, very heavy loads, which you know are going to affect your spinal position under a controlled environment, or you're taking yourself quite close to failure through technical failure or just exertion, and you will fall into a more exaggerated posture, which if you're a skilled lifter, isn't really a problem. But to the point, it's not really an isometric in my eyes, where an isometric contraction is going to have the least amount of growth potential. In isometric, by its definition, there's no degree of, of angle change between the two surfaces of the joints that comprise it. But that's not the truth. As you go from start to finish, when you start from the floor, and we'll just say we're starting from the floor anyway, just to make this simple. If you're starting from the floor, as soon as you exert force into the bar and you start to lift from the ground, you're going to have a degree angle change at every single segment of the spine from that starting position. It's going to happen. It will. And what, what happens when that happens? It's no longer an isometric. Even if your intent is to not have the degree angle change at those spinal segments, the fact that it is means that you're going through an eccentric contraction. You are lengthening those muscle tissues. Even if it's to a small degree, you still are. And as you move from a mechanically disadvantaged position in the bottom, where you're experiencing the most of a moment arm, the most joint torque on all those joints, and as you get closer to the top where you're standing upright, you're going to have less and less force exerted directly on those spinal segments. And what are you gonna do? As you're able, you're going to move from being in that more eccentrically loaded position where you fell to after you exerted the most force into the bar from the most disadvantaged position, you're going to realign yourself into a more advantageous position for you to go back down into the eccentric phase of the lift itself. So you are going through, in a limited sense, eccentric and concentric phases with those muscle tissues that are actually holding your back together and holding your shoulders in position and aligning your rib cage. So I would agree with this, but I'm thinking I'm going to approach it from a little bit of a different viewpoint. We're going to kind of bounce back and forth some ideas. So All right. for me, the way that I would look to argue this and discuss, discuss this, let me, let me rephrase myself discuss this is that I typically view the back and or specifically the lats as a rate limiter of the movement of a hip hinge. So never arguing that there's not any back slash lat involvement because we know that it's your capacity to brace is largely due to the uh, amount of tension that can be driven through the thoracolumbar fascia because of the lats, right? Um, my, my issue that I have with people is that we get this virtue signaling of Hip hinge slash deadlift variations, mostly deadlift variations, are priority number one for lat development. And in my case, I view that as a faulty logic. So when I see a hip hinge, I'm trying to appropriate volume from a hip hinge according to body parts, right? So we can look at it as a, depending on the hip hinge, probably a set towards glutes slash hamstrings, depending on the relative knee bend, right? Um, and we might be looking at some carryover stimulus in the back. We could probably classify that as maybe half a set, 
due to the lack of movement that we're seeing within a hip hinge at, at the lat and or musculars from the shoulder to the hip, right? So for me, I don't like to classify the hip hinge as a back developer movement because of this lack of movement we see, but that doesn't mean that it's not involved. And this comes from my viewpoint of trying to separate muscles from primary, secondary, tertiary action and involvement in movement from origin to insertion, which we could possibly argue can be faulty in some setups, but for the most part is going to allow us to classify movements of whether it's actually training the musculature or not. So when I look at a hip hinge, I'm, I'm not going to be that, that guy that says back's not involved because it, it clearly is. My issue is when we start saying hip hinges are optimal or, or a priority for lap development, because I do think it's integral and I think it's something that needs to happen. And just from a functionality standpoint, you need to be able to do this, but I view it more as a rate limiter rather than an actual developer. Agreed. Okay. All right. Agreed. Yeah. So moving forward from there, we need to classify what the prioritization is for, for lat development specifically. And we, we can probably touch a little bit of the back, other back to heart, body parts too. But specifically lats, because that's literally the question that gets in my inbox like so many times relative to most other body parts. Quads occasionally, but um, let's start classifying what we need to do from a setup and a movement pattern analysis in order for lat development now that we've kind of addressed the, the hip hinge uh, assessment. Okay. So one of the first things that I tend to look at when people just don't have a good ability to get anything out of their lats is first of all, we already touched on this in the, the beginning with my muscle connection, sensation versus um, actual stimulation, where to a point, fighting for more and more sensation doesn't get you more outcome. But if you don't have any sensation, you have a problem. Okay. So in a lot of cases, people have a really hard time with lats because they don't really have any, first of all, they don't really have any understanding of the anatomy of the lats in the first place. They don't really understand where the fibers align to. They don't really understand where it actually starts. They don't understand how to manipulate their body in a way that actually allows them to use their lats to the greatest degree and disallow other muscles that are going to contribute a lot of force into similar movement patterns that will take over if you allow them to. So being that the lat crosses, it starts at the thoracolumbar fascia, which is for everybody that doesn't know what that is, it's the Christmas tree on your lower back, okay? So it attaches there and then it runs up your back and then it crosses laterally in a diagonal and then it comes out in front of your shoulder and attaches on the front of your upper arm, okay? Being that that is the anatomy, you need to understand further than that, the fact that for one, the alignment of the muscle fibers is mostly vertical in most people. So that is the reason why when people go with the, the bro logic of pull your hand really close to your rib cage, that's where that comes from. That whole idea comes from the fact that if you want to align forces, the way that you direct the part of your body that actually has the attachment has to line up with the direction of the muscle fibers for you to access them to the greatest degree. So being that that is the case for most people, a good general direction is to always be trying to pull more close to the torso rather than flared out to the side. 
okay? So the more adducted your arm is to your side, the more likely you're going to be utilizing the lat and not utilizing the other upper back muscles that are going to do a lot of work once you start abducting your arm, okay? So secondarily, because of the fact that we know the, the anatomy, we've laid that out now, something to understand beyond fiber alignment is just the manipulation of the joints that it actually affects and crosses. So one of the biggest things that you see in a lot of people, almost everybody universally, that don't quite understand how, like we talked about already, our entire body is a meshwork of single joint systems tied into each other in every direction. Okay, so the lat isn't just something that you affect by moving your upper arm bone around. That's just not the case, okay? So just because you do movements for lats by moving your upper arm around doesn't mean that that's the only thing that matters. So being the fact that it actually crosses from the thoracolumbar fascia, your Christmas tree, all the way up your spine, crossing the back of your shoulder and then up to the front of your upper arm, something that is important is understanding that your pelvis position, your hips, is integral for you being able to actually do anything with your lats. Anything. And I mean actually anything. So something that makes us... a almost a caricature that makes it really easy to understand. Looking at somebody, a picture in your mind, somebody that's doing a lat pull down. Almost universally, if you don't know better, what do you do on a lat pull down? You arch your back really far and you try to align yourself in a direction that you can pull the bar as close to your chest as you can. But what does that have you do? You're flaring your rib cage, you're opening up your abdomen, you're actually closing off your lower back. You're already pre-shortening your lats. And then in doing so, you realign your shoulder joint and you're directing your elbows into an abducted manner instead of pulling it close to your body. Almost universally, you're going to end up using your teres and your mid back to do all of your lat pull down work if you're in an arch position. It changes the alignment of the shoulder, changes the alignment of the rib cage, and then you disallow yourself being able to access any of the lower part of the lat because you have already moved it out of the way and the force alignment is no longer there, okay? So making this very, very easy and simple to look at. If you're thinking about, if you look at just your abs on the front of your body, if you're trying to train your abs, does it make sense for you to curl yourself all the way over, like you're trying to put your chest into your knees and then just staying there and then doing some arches backward to try and train, train your abs. It makes absolutely no sense. It sounds silly. You almost can't even picture it unless I kind of half did it on the video right here. But that's what you're doing when you try to train your lap by crunching yourself into an arch backwards. You're disallowing yourself from being able to actually get that muscle to lengthen and shorten because you've already pre-shortened it and then you've changed the alignment of the shoulder and then your upper arm travels in a direction that doesn't align to the lat fibers anymore. You missed the point. Do you have anything to add to that? So I would, this is curious because I would 100% agree with that because especially when you like start to get into like a, a full, like really big arch, we're now moving not only 
shoulder shoulder position but we're moving directional force into a plane that's going to be more aligned better towards like mid-lower traps possibly even rhomboids depending on how much of the arch there is but even when i do set up someone in a close grip pull down specifically for lats i do still cue a slight upper thoracic arch to almost lock in the position so because we're still in a relatively vertical position but for most people, depending on the cable setup of the pull down too, this is another thing that can kind of vary. Um, it will allow that individual to drive directionally along the fibers of the lat a little bit better. But the moment they take it past slight thoracic extension into moving slower, more into that lower thoracic lumbar extension with the arch, that's where we lose it. And so there's a big key to differentiate there in that there's a difference in a slide up, almost like lower cervical, upper thoracic cue of, a, of an arch to lock it in versus like a lower thoracic lumbar arch for that movement pattern specifically. Yeah. So calling that what it is, we're looking for that middle ground where we're trying to almost make a neutral lat position. We're getting the hips to go into a posterior tilt. So we're taking that origin point a little bit further away. We're not allowing for us to arch back through the lumbar. So we're actually setting ourselves where we're actually at a significant length of that lat to start with. And then to align the forces, you do arch yourself slightly at your thoracic spine to be able to continue to allow that alignment to happen. If we were in a fully thoracically flexed position, if we were trying to fully lengthen the lat as much as we could, we'd be balling ourselves into a crunch, which is not the goal. And not even to be in a slight crunch where we're actually looking like we're in any sort of flexion at any part of the spine. We're not trying, the goal isn't to go into flexion at any portion of the spine. It's to align yourself so that all the forces are getting applied into the fibers in the direction they can actually apply force back. And, and this is an important point to yeah. make because I think that people will hear like don't arch back at all and then they'll try to get into this like forward lean position right where we're probably preferentially training the terry's plane of motion rather than like lats and stuff like that which is another one that i see with lat training is the release from traps to terry's in a change of upper body position relative to the shoulder which then allows that individual to not keep it into a, a lat pattern movement um, and it starts crossing muscle fiber direction and just doesn't end well with um, actually training where the mind muscle connection is enough to quantify as we're actually training it right we don't want to chase sensation but we want to be able to know what's going on yep. so stepping away from the lat specifically and moving into broad general body parts that is one specific example of like the logic that it takes when we're looking to train body parts from origin to insertion in action so that we prioritize these movement patterns as a whole. And one thing I think a lot of people miss is taking that logic and applying it to all body parts, whether it's delts, whether it's chest, whether it's no matter what it is. Um, so giving you some free reign to take the conversation where you want it. Where is the body parts that you see people mess up the most in learning to actually train it appropriately along the lines of discussions that we just had for a lap. Hmm. Man. That's a tough one, I know. You see a lot, so it's like. 
Too long of a leash, my man. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, immediately, my brain is just telling me almost everyone does nearly everything wrong. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> For me, I think one of the biggest ones I see is definitely like chest training. I think that okay. there's a disconnect from chest training from humorous travel relative to serratus anterior action as well. So looking at how serratus anterior can be involved in the stability of pressing and actually can be a rate limiter within um, pressing patterns, especially when we get towards the last 20 degrees of pressing movement pattern. Um, and then classifying movements rather to um, uh, rib cage position relative to humorous travel. Um, so if you want to kind of dive into that and, and, and see where we can take that one, we could go that route for sure. Yeah, we can go that direction. Something, something to be said on that general topic, because we had the lat fresh in our head still. Something that's generally not understood is that the lat and the pec actually aren't antagonists. Okay. So actually, if you look at it in a more holistic sense, rather than their actions and what they do and look at what they function to do, they're more alike to each other than they are different. And in some, and this is something that I actually learned from our man, Dr. Jordan Shallow, that gets a shout out every time I'm, I'm talking about mechanics. Cause <laughs> man, I hope he listens to this. I hope he's proud of the, the youngins doing the job. I, I hope doing, he does. I hope he does. Yeah. Uh, doing the good work. But in some people, in some cadavers, you can see that the tendons of actually a pec and the lat converge on each other and they attach to one another because they share so much of the same function. Okay. So looking at the lat, as something that is, or even to take this in a more general sense, trying to look at body parts as agonist antagonists is almost a useless concept in most body parts. Okay, so where it does have some application is really mostly in the arm. Because in a more direct sense, even though the bicep does affect the rotation at the lower arm, to the degree that you can manipulate the rotation at the lower arm, it doesn't actually have that significant of a change of what you're able to do movement-wise, that it's that much different from the tricep in its opposing action that you could really consider it like being different enough not to be an antagonist. But if you look at specifically more the muscles that are on the axial skeleton on your torso, the muscles that are on your torso, even if you're trying to go like, trying to use the same rule that we use for bicep and tricep, like, oh, this one's on the front, this one's on the back in the same position, they're gonna be antagonists. It doesn't work like that. It does not work like that. So trying to think like, what's the biggest muscle on the front of me? My pec. What's the biggest muscle on the back of me? My lat. There we go. Agonist, antagonist, supersets all day, Arnold Schwarzenegger style. And that's the way we're going to go. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> You're killing me, Smalls. <laughs> so 
to go a little bit deeper into the concept, like trying to figure out what is an agonist and antagonist in that sense and trying to program in that way doesn't really make all that much sense, especially when you don't understand what their actual function is, because you're going to be moving a lot of the same single joint systems, the shoulder, the glenohumeral joint to start, and then the scapula as it moves across the rib cage, that is going to be the primary joint system that is going to be affected that will move and use all the musculature of the axial skeleton, okay? Being that that's the case, we're looking at tangent angles of every single direction in every plane that those can move that will affect different muscle tissues to different degrees in different ways. Being that that's the case, you can't really isolate off agonist antagonist groups in a clean, perfect way. It's not helpful. And if you try to go through the process of trying to load something in an agonist antagonist type fashion, like that Arnold Schwarzenegger type chest lat superset type thing, being the fact that you're going to be using the same joint systems to affect those muscle tissues and they work in very similar ways to actually stabilize at the shoulder as a secondary function, you're going to have continually degrading ability to control that joint system as you fatigue from attacking it in both directions. And it gives you lesser and lesser quality of work as you're moving through it. And as you continually build more and more fatigue, you're going to have bigger and bigger issues accumulating on you. And if an entire training paradigm is built this way, then you're going to come into some unintended consequences quite quickly down the line where you're going to have issues with just general movement pattern uh, replicability. And then beyond that point, building in some movement compensations that aren't intended to happen that end up limiting your ability to continue doing things properly in the first place. So you have anything to add to that? I think that that's a, a pertinent viewpoint to make because when we, we see a lot of people do this antagonist agonist work and in, in, in programs, it, it, it makes me question how much of a sensational aspect that they're taking versus actually understanding how do we create an output that's greatest for the body part given. Um, just from the point of like, we know that a stable position is going to produce more force. It's like just basic freaking physics. Um, yep. So why would we, why would we choose movements that are going to affect the same uh, single joint or multiple joints that we're dealing with within a movement pattern to where they can't create stability in order to output. And, and this is like, as we kind of stream into discussing program design with this thought process, I think there's a, a, a big miss of training sensation versus training movement patterns. And I think that that's because what's the stereotypical thing you hear with people is like, holy shit, I feel fucking big training chest or opposing acts and chest to lap, right? Like I've got this sick fucking pump, like whatever, like my shirt feels filled out. That's fantastic. Cool. You look good for a single day, but, or for a single two hours while you're in the gym, whatever it is. But when we look to program for people specifically, especially when these could be like weaker body parts, why would we take the most, the, what I would probably consider the utmost valuable tool that we can have in stability to produce force. And I think that that would be a good starter of sequencing this movement pattern thought process in the program. I like that. You got me sparked on something here. So 
this, this is something that, I mean, maybe I'm just young and I'm a spring chicken and I can do whatever I like. And I don't see too many consequences from me doing heavy things first. And I don't ever want to step on the toes of people that have come far before me, done far much more work, done decades of it and espousing different ideas because they've seen more, they've experienced more and they have their own reasons. So I don't want anything that I say to be misconstrued as being an attack on anybody on anything that they do or anything that they might say is effective. Okay. And I have a lot of respect for the same people that actually do say these things. Preamble done. But I don't understand what the idea, I mean, I do understand, but I don't understand why it's an idea now that's being used widely that you're going to do your biggest compound exercises last. Okay. So like, this is, this is something that I see like a lot of like really good bodybuilders, a lot of strong people, a lot of exceptional bodies do. But what I don't understand coming at it from a mechanic standpoint is exactly what we just talked about is if we're looking at our, really our number one resource that we have available to us in our training, the thing that that keeps us from falling over the edge. Did I lose you? No. Okay. Good. Keep going. Oh, yeah. Internet connection unstable. Can you hear me? I'm good. You're good. Keep going. Cool. Cool. So if we're looking at stability as really the one thing that keeps us from falling over the brink and having something go wrong, or in not an acute sense, but in a chronic sense, if we're not addressing our stability over time, and we're doing things that directly negatively affect our ability to create stability within our movement patterns, we're going to be accruing problems that won't rear their heads until they're a little bit too far over the edge for us to save. And then we're going to have to do a lot of pulling ourselves back later and trying to deconstruct the problem that had been laid down over periods of weeks, months, or even years. And then trying to work back from square one to get back to where we could do everything effectively once again. Okay. So if we're looking at stability as something that is our primary resource to continue to be doing everything to our greatest ability to produce force to start with, and then our greatest resource for keeping us in the game longer, doing our best job. If that's the case, then why are we loading up a free bar back squat as our final movement on leg day? Why are we doing a deadlift from the floor as our last movement on a pull day or a leg day even. Why would we do, and this is less common, but still a thing, why would we do a barbell or a dumbbell, incline, flat, whatever, bench press as the last movement on a push day or a chest day or a shoulder day? It doesn't make sense. If we're looking at the fact that as you continually fatigue these muscle groups and we put more and more stress on them, as you get through the session, you should be, if you're training effectively, accumulating fatigue. You should be. And if you're actually treating every single movement that you're doing with respect, then you're going to not only rely on the external stability that machines that you're using and the implements you use are going to give you. External stability from machines is helpful and it is significant, but external stability doesn't stand in or you internally controlling all the positions of every singular joint in your body to be able to 
produce and redistribute forces effectively. So if we're going through all these motions and we're building fatigue through the session, doing all similar patterns, stressing these same muscle groups that are going to be affected, when we do those bigger movement patterns last, we're looking at taking away all of the resource that we had available for us to do the most effective job at it. And that's not even to, because this is the argument that's made for doing it in the first place, is that with the fatigue you accumulate, you don't have to use as much load to get the same hypertrophic effect. I don't know if I quite believe that. And it's, it's hard to prove one way or the other, really, because we don't have anything to like actually hang our hat on as far as like studies to look at for that. But if we go beyond that point, then what is, what is the point if we're looking at, okay, we are stressing the big muscle groups that are the force producers. Yes, we are going to hit failure sooner with lesser load. True. Maybe that does lessen the possibility of injury as opposed to you doing it as the first exercise. Maybe if you are already prone to having that injury happen in the first place. And that's the caveat that needs to be said. If you were going to have that injury happen to that muscle group in the first place, it didn't come from a direct problem with that muscle group. In most cases, when you have something happen at a singular muscle group that is a force-producing muscle group, it's because they had to take over a job that a force-redistributing muscle group isn't doing and having it have to take over more than one job for something that it really doesn't have the direct me uh, mechanical advantage to do well, that is the force overload, not the load that you're actually placing on it with the load on the bar. That is the force that ends up popping off the pec tendon, popping off the bicep tendon, tearing your quad off. That's how it happens. It's not coming from the fact that you put another 25 pounds on the bar than what you could have done if you were more fatigued at that specific muscle group. So being that that is the case, why put it at the end of the session? Because now you fatigued not only the force producers, but you have put a much greater amount of fatigue on the force redistributors, the force directors the ones that restrict motion within the planes that you don't actually have direct control over with those force producing muscles. And that's where the problem happens. When you don't have the ability from those stabilizing muscles, those force redistributing muscles to do their job, it gets dumped off somewhere else. And that somewhere else is the muscle that is getting placed under the greatest amount of load. What happens? There goes the pattern. So why? Why? I plead. Why? <laughs> and I think this is a, I think this is more a lack of understanding of realizing that muscles have more function than just the, the, the single action of, of moving from insertion to origin, right? So the, these force redistributors that you're calling are very active in, in allowing someone to output force in these, these movement patterns. But your conversation kind of sparked me down something I've been thinking about. I discussed this in a podcast before, but I don't think it's going to get released, so fuck it. Um, <laughs> All right. It's a classification of pre-exhaust systems because this is something that I've seen a lot of. And for me, that's like the arguments made, like we can match hypertrophy along pre-exhaust systems relative to, you know, primaries first, right? Now, I would never make the argument that we could see 
primary movements as last, but I am going to classify these pre-exhaust systems as tools in our toolbox. So priority number one would be the standard terrace stereotypical setup where we're doing our compound movements first, then we're moving into our isolation based movements, right? So the regression from there would be probably something like surrounding musculature. Um, so training something that's weaker body parts first, even though you might have compounds that are for, so for example, this would be adductors and hamstring curls prior to quad based, right? If you're very quad dominant, relatively not hamstring adductor dominant. Okay. That's classification number two on the, the regression scale. Regression number three would be around joint integrity. So training a compound that is going to train shortened end range, preferentially more than lengthened end range. Um, before we move into the compound that's going to be training lengthening in rage, which is something I'm having to do right now because of my patella tendon. So if we look at it, we do like a pendulum leg press first, loads fully in range, maybe even a banded 45 degree leg press, however you want to set it up. Then I move into the hack squat or the squat variation that I'm loading in range with, right? So that's classification number three or regression number three. I think that's primarily used um, as a stepping stone from regression four or as an injury movement, as a, a way to work around injuries type of a tool. Regression number four, which is the last and the final, is single joint isolation pre-exhaust prior to compounds. Now, the only reason I would suggest this as a tool would be teaching someone the ability to create the mind-muscle connection within compounds that is necessary within those movement patterns. So we would get a muscle short, so like if we're saying quads, for example, we would use a quad extension before we hack squatted or before whatever compound we chose for the quads. And we would prioritize getting that muscle short first before we went into compound in order to teach that individual how to connect with the muscle appropriately within the compound movement. And these is, this is the classification of regression systems that I think that allows us to understand why would we use these tools but still prioritizes the fact that we need to be, if we can, we need to be in a stable environment in order to maximize output as the first priority. Then we can look at these regression schemes as tools in our toolbox if we need them, right? Cause like it, it's killing me not to be able to squat as like a primary movement pattern right now, but I just physically can't. Like my patella tendon on my right side just can't handle it. So I, I'm taking a regression in order to continue to progress within my physique. Do I think it's optimal? Probably not, but it's what I'm capable of doing and progressing over time. And then we can now look at these and be like, okay, each one has its role, but we know what the priority is. So you let, you let me run? Let, I'm letting you run. I'm wanting to hear your comments on this because this is, this is shit that's been keeping me up at night because I just, I just think about it way too much. Honestly, I think you classified it really well. So to look at it as those being tools in the toolbox, I think something that's a, a theme that you place through that, whether or not you, you did it intentionally, is that you're looking at sensation as the starting base for all of these things, which is foundational. And especially if you're coming from an injury or you're not very skilled, which really to argue, if you're injured, you're not quite skilled because you have lost the skill to be able to use that muscle after you've injured it. It's just a fact of it. And you have to relearn it. So going through positions that one, a shortened muscle is going to be a weaker muscle. Having a load predominantly set into a shortened position, you're going to have better control over the weight through the largest portion of the contractile range that you're moving through because there's going to be less total loading. Because if you're going to get yourself into the fully shortened position, 
spend a fair amount of time there, which is the intent, then you're going to have to lighten the load from what you could handle in the mid and lengthen portions. That's just the fact of the matter. So you're going to gain the sensation. You're going to lessen the loading. You're going to continue to get an adaptation from it, but your greatest adaptation you're getting is relearning. It's the motor learning aspect. These regressions are mostly looking at a motor learning aspect where when we're trying to go through these patterns, the most important thing, again, is our stability throughout these patterns. We're looking at trying to, because the main thing that really is important to take a step back from that, the thing that's important is output. Really, what's important is output, but how do we get output? You get output from being in a stable environment. How do you get a stable environment? One, the environment. <laughs> Two, the internal environment that you create. Okay? So, to make this distinction, because th this is a little bit of a lateral thing aside from what we're talking about directly, mm -hmm. but looking at it in hearing these words being said by either you or anybody else that says smart shit about biomechanics or anything training really, if you're hearing the words stability or stable environments are best for output, you might think and connect the dots that, oh, that means I need to be set into an externally stabilized environment to get the most amount of force, which isn't a one-to-one. -one. Sure, the argument can be made. Definitely, if you're going to do a bicep curl, if you're doing a standing hammer curl with a dumbbell, you're going to be in a less stable environment than if you put that back of your arm against the bench and you did it on a preacher. That is true. You can create more total output directly in that singular muscle group that you're trying to get output from in that environment. But there's gradations here. So if you're looking at a larger movement pattern or trying to move very large loads with large muscle groups, say hamstrings or quads. So if we're looking at a squatting pattern or better, a hip hinge, we're looking at trying to load the hamstrings. Your best options for loading the hamstrings is not going to be a ham curl. You're going to get good output and it'll be accurate output, which is great which is a fantastic tool. And this is not to say that hamstr uh, hamstring curls are not useful because they are, and they should be a staple for everyone that can do them. But your greatest output is not going to come from the stable environment that you get from being externally stabilized in that hamstring curl machine. Your greatest output at that muscle group, at those joint systems is going to be in that non-externally stabilized movement in RDL or a stiff leg or a real conventional deadlift or a rack pull from below the knee or at the knee or whatever you want to do with it, whatever variation you want to do, that is going to be your greatest opportunity for output. Your stable environment is generated by you in that case. And as long as you're not a loon and you're trying to stand on Airx pads or a BOSU ball while doing it, then the external environment isn't going to be a problem. The problem will be you. The limiting, the, the rate limiter on this is going to be you and your ability to set positions, retain positions, redistribute forces, and generate forces in all the directions across all the joint systems that are needed for you to do this successfully. Okay, so peel it back, take it back to where we started. Thinking about being in a stable environment to get the greatest output, 
doesn't only apply to machine work. It does not only apply to things that you have a bench to press into or to lay into because you can create stability internally. And you should always be, even if you have those things available as external stabilizers, should always be primarily thinking about how you yourself internally generate stability at the joints that you're trying to work. Because even with external stability, it's only part of the battle, only a part of it. So if you're not redistributing forces across these joints the way that they should be, you're not being conscious about it, it's going to go in every single direction it possibly can. And even if you have some of those degrees of motion restricted by something external to you, there's still a whole hell of a lot of tangent directions that things can move that aren't being controlled by the thing that you're pressing against. Okay, so that covers that. Um, the rest of your regressions on that, I don't really have much to add to them other than the fact that in most cases, I think one of the issues that we kind of see with like the counter argument to doing compounds first is the fact that nobody understands how to warm up. Nobody. Okay. So even the people that like think that they're in the know, typically with warming up, get mischaracterized information and try to think about like, they're either, okay, I'm going to walk in and I'm going to put a bar on the ground and I'm going to put, just do the bar. And then I'm going to put a 45 on it. And then I'm going to put two 45s on it. Then I'm going to put three. And then I'm going to go to wherever it is that's approximately close to my working set, take a five minute walk around the gym, get a couple of buddies to come and take a, a video of me doing a 315 deadlift really shittily, and then go back to their thing. If that is what you're doing, yeah, compound first, probably not going to go well for you because it's a ticking time bomb when a catastrophe is going to happen because you didn't warm up. You didn't prepare, which is what I would rather say rather than a warm up because that phrase itself is completely fucking useless <laughs> because this, this is something else too that is an entire other topic and a whole thing that gets me really fired up. Um, the, the importance of actually being physically like temperature warm is entirely overstated. Okay. So being in a warm environment so that all of your joints are doing everything they're supposed to be. Enzymatic processes are happening as they're supposed to be. Beautiful. Sure. But do we all understand that we're not lizards? We are not cold blooded. We actually sit within a very, very close, very tight range of internal temperatures at all times. This is like how we don't die on a daily basis and how we actually live in every single environment that exists on planet earth. Okay. And people across the world in every environment can do some incredible things with their bodies, regardless of the temperature that their external environment is. Okay. So if we're looking at how warm we are as the actual, like what is going to allow us to start moving heavy things is being completely unspecific to what moving heavy things requires. Moving heavy things, a prerequisite isn't being physically warm. Being physically warm is going to come from you actually accurately preparing yourself to do the work that you're going to do anyway. 
So if we're looking at a warm-up as getting temperature warm, then you walking on a treadmill for 10 minutes is going to suffice in your mind to get warm for you to go and pull a max deadlift. Completely inaccurate, not helpful. Doesn't do anything for you. If you've been sitting in a chair all day, you going for a walk is definitely going to help. It's definitely going to get you in a better prepared position for you to do it rather than you just walking in from your desk and trying to pull one rep max. That's true. That's accurate. However, if we're looking at actually being prepared for our best output, which is what we should be looking at, warm-ups aren't warm-ups. Warm-ups are preparation sets or rehearsal sets. In the work that we do prior to the rehearsal sets is what sets us up to actually rehearse accurately to do the work accurately. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to walk in and do an hour and a half on a foam roller before you start training. It's not helpful either. Sitting on a lacrosse ball or having somebody do cupping directly before you did your session or you doing some personal Graston work on your quads before you squat, probably not doing all that much for you, okay? You also doing a full yoga session before is also not going to help you. However, having a general understanding of what it is that is required of your body to get into the specific positions you're going to be in when you're training, that is important. And that will direct what your preparation is. Your preparation is going to be comprised of you putting yourself into biomechanically disadvantageous positions or gradations of advantage to disadvantage positions for these exercises you're going to be doing through your session so you can get access to them and better control them. So as an example of that, if you're going to be squatting and it's a leg day, part of your preparation is going to be looking at, okay, what are the requirements of the squat? Okay, maybe I'm front squatting, okay? So I need to be able to control my spine from going into uncontrolled flexion. I need to have control over spinal flexion and extension, okay? So what do you do? You prepare yourself with something that places you into controlled amounts of spinal flexion and extension under a small amount of load, so even a Jefferson curl, under a limited amount of load because you don't need a lot, but doing it with intent and understanding what the point of what you're doing is. That will prepare you and get, in, you, know, get you into the positions that you will be in if something goes wrong, which is what you should be prepared for. Aside from that, you need to have yourself able to get into a front rack position. So what do you do with that? Can you actually, yeah, can, can, you, can you do the Olympic grip? Probably not. Probably none of the meatheads listening to this can do it either. So that's not helpful. But even without being in a full Olympic grip, can you actually set yourself up so you can do a cross grip? Can you? Probably, but what does it look like? Usually, you're going to be fully hunched forward. Your spine is curled into a, into a question mark from the start, not even after you put the bar on your shoulders. It just looks like that before you unrack. How helpful is that? And why are you there? You're there because your lap is freaking the fuck out on you because it doesn't like to be in the most disadvantaged position it could be because that's what it is. That's what it is because your lap is being responsible for the position of your pelvis 
from the posterior side. It's also in control over all of the spinal segments from the base of your thoracolumbar fascia to all the way up to your shoulders, and then your shoulder itself. And now you stand yourself up, you put a load on the front of your shoulders, and you try to put your shoulder out here, internally rotated, and then out in front of you and slightly protracted. What are you doing? You're putting a lot of load through a length and lat, and it has to be stable in an isometric contraction in that position. If your lats are really tight, guess what's gonna happen? Your pelvis is gonna be unstable, your spine is gonna be unstable from top to bottom, and your shoulder is gonna be unstable. So what do you do? You do some type of release on your lat to start with. You get yourself to actually allow it to do the thing that it's supposed to do, so it's not obstructing your ability to get into the range of motion you should be able to access. And then from there, you load it into the position that you're going to have to be in in the first place. That covers that base. Then from there, what else needs to happen when you squat? You need to be able to move your hips. You need to be able to actually squat. So what do you do next? You do a squat pattern. <laughs> you do a squat pattern that actually allows you to get into that position. So whether or not you're in a nice, stable, mobile place with your body or you're not is going to determine what kind of squat pattern and what kind of advantages you'll give yourself to get into this position. So you can use something as a counterbalance. You can use a band as a counterbalance, put it on something that's not going to move, stand yourself super duper upright, or even lean yourself back almost like you're doing a pendulum squat. Get yourself to move slowly with intent, controlling your hip, knee, and ankle, controlling your brace, controlling your shoulder position, packing your lats, controlling everything from the top of your head down to the base of your hips, and then thinking about what you have to do from your hips down. And you isolate those systems so that you know what you're doing there. And then as you can get into those ranges of motion and it's smoother and smoother, you take away the advantage. You move yourself closer. You stand yourself more upright. You can use a plate like a 25 plate. Put it really far out in front of you. That's a large counterbalance force. Pull it closer and closer and closer to you until it's like a goblet. That takes less and less of that front balance force away from you. And now you have to control it even more. So that is an easy case study right there as an example of what you would want to do as your preparation before you actually do the warm-ups or the rehearsal sets for front squatting as your first exercise. Now, if you went through all of those steps and everything was done accurately and it covers all the bases that you as a single individual person, because this will be different with the preparation that you as an individual need to do to be able to get into these positions and do it well, if it's specific to you and it covers all your bases, get into your first exercise, it shouldn't matter that it's a free weight exercise under high loads. You're not going to be at a significant danger of injury if you weren't already on the path to getting there in the first place. Because you've actually accurately prepared yourself. Your body in your mind is now connected with the sensation in the pattern itself that you have ingrained, that this is now no longer you're going through the motions of doing the exercise you're trying to do and trying to, in real time, figure out what the hell your body's doing. You don't have to go through the learning process in real time while doing the working sets anymore. 
you have gone through the accurate preparation so that you've scaled yourself into the actual activity. Then once you're there, you can turn your brain off. You have one or two cues that are actually accurate for what you need to do so that you can stay focused on what is actually going to get you through the reps. And that's it. You've taken care of you setting yourself into positions that you actually need to be in. You've taken care of that. You've gone through different scaled positions of the exact exercise that you're going to be doing so that you can anticipate the positions that those joints will be in if something goes wrong. Doing a front squat or a back squat with a barbell, you're not going to get as deep as you can with a counterbalance or a goblet or anything that you use as a preparatory exercise for that movement. You're just not. You're not going to get the same depth as you shouldn't. Okay? You're not going to get to that same position. Your knees are going to track slightly differently. You're going to have the ability to move them in space laterally. You're going to be able to rotate at your hips a little bit differently. You're going to be able to sit yourself onto your ankles in different distributions of load. You're going to be able to move side to side, allow your spine to shift in one way or the other, feel out the resting tension of the muscle groups that are going to be resting in tight on the person that you are based off of what your daily activity or inactivity is like. And so you've exposed yourself to all of these different degrees of what the worst case scenario positions could possibly be. You've experienced what it's like. You've worked out some of the kinks just by being in those positions already and controlling them. And now what, what can we say in, in finality of that whole, if this whole synopsis, you're prepared to work. Now you have quote unquote warmed up. Now you can do your work. Now you don't have to do an entire session of leg extension, then adductor, then hamstring curl, then a hyper extension to hit your glutes and then doing every single machine that you could possibly move in there so that you have experienced the different ranges of motion in all these joints requiring these muscle groups to do work for you to feel like you're confident enough to go and do a compound exercise utilizing all of them, which is really what it's standing in for. All these other exercises are standing in as preparation for you to get there and feel like you have access to those positions. But if you allowed yourself to get there first, you took care of all the things that are prerequisites to allowing you to get there, then hey, you're ready. You can do it. You're not at greater risk. But then there's also all those tools that you have in your toolbox where if you're a specific case where you don't have great sensation, even after doing all those preparations, you don't have great sensation. You need to do something a little bit extra. Put yourself into shortened ranges. You had a previous injury that you need to work around that you need to gain more capacity at. You could do that. You can scale yourself into doing different exercises before a compound based on whether or not you have an extremely lagging muscle group or not. All these things are still available as tools, but to look at it as like one of those tools always needs to be in play because it's an inferior option for you to start with a compound exercise is only predicated on your misunderstanding of whether or not you can warm up effectively. Which is why I classified it as regressions with the point being that the compound priority with prep work and play should always be what the focus is and only use the regressions as needed. And I think that a lot of people miss the movement prep piece too is like, 
not only the preparatory work that's going to allow you to output and be stable in these positions, whether your movement pattern is internal or externally stabilized. But I also think that it's, and, and Jordan's the one that termed it in this way that has just, it, when I heard it a couple years ago, it just clicked as like a testing ground to see if there's other prep work that needs to happen. So as we move through this movement prep that's specific to the session, if there's something that rings off an alarm, we can then continue to movement prep specific to whatever's ringing off the alarm. Yeah. And it allows us to be centered in the moment and fully understand what my capabilities are as we prep and prep according to the session, which is, which is funny because you'll see people do the same roll around thing before every session over on the turf area. And it's yep, like, yep. I've seen you do that every day for the last four days. I know you haven't trained the same body part every day for the last four days. Like let's, let's be a little bit more hyper-specific here. So it's just. Maybe they're Bulgarian squatters. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> Maybe, but I seriously <laughs> doubt it. So, and, and that's just the thing, man, is like, People take posts specifically out of context in the sense that we'll, we'll classify things as like a tool to be used. Um, and it's, it's then taken as a, a classification of something that's necessary for everyone. Yeah. yeah. Which is one reason why I do the podcast in long form is for the explanation of thought process because you're so limited within the social media realms of just yeah. 60 seconds plus whatever you can fit into the caption. And yep. so that's, and that's a big missing thing, man. And then you can take this logic and, and, and prepare the most efficient way of creating a stimulus for the individual based on what they can do and how they can do those things. And that logic is really what I try to get across. And it's just unfortunate that we can't, for a lot of people, have them almost do what's like an auto-regulated movement prep right? Because they don't fully understand what's, yeah. what's, what's prepping them for the session. Um, but helping people get there is, is what we should be aiming towards. And, and if, if someone doesn't discuss movement prep with you within a program, there's probably that that's a big issue. Like it should be discussed at some point. Um, yeah. And it is, if, is a, a big thing. If the coach is not taking time to specifically address what your movements actually look like. And they're just giving you a exercises, sets and reps and telling you to have at it. There's a problem. Oh my God. I ask all my clients to send me videos and I swear to God, I feel like I chase videos for, for execution more than I do damn check-ins. It's like, yeah. how hard is it to sit your phone on your damn shaker and just take a video <laughs> for so I can see it. Like I'm yeah. trying to help you be a better bodybuilder here. Like, just do it. Like, and that's one reason, like, I love it when I get programming clients that are in the area because I can be there. And that's yeah. just next level, man. I just, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's something to be said for this is like, even being that this is long form and this is a much better medium than Instagram is, it's still an inadequate medium for really what it is that we want to get across. And no matter what we do, no matter how elegant we try to set things up, it's not all, it's not going to work. It's going to be as close as we can get. And there's going to be some people that are more alike to you and me than different that are going to be able to synthesize the information in a way that we're actually intending it to be used. 
but they're in the minority because most people don't have like one, they don't have the patience to wade through the information without applying it directly as they saw it. So that's something where there's a patience aspect that we just, I mean, as an entire society at large, we don't have. So having the patience to look through information and then decide over the thousand posts that you've seen in a week, that which of these lines of logic is going to converge with what I already know that can fill in the gaps that don't just lead me into an entire direct, like different direction that I have absolutely no basis of knowledge to understand in the first place. And therefore the application of that idea is going to lead me down a path that I don't understand how to get myself into or out of. People don't have quite that understanding. And then if we go into Instagram itself, it's, it's not a medium that was built to do what we're trying to do with it. In, in no way. It is not, it's not an educational platform as much as we all are trying to force it. Well, you know, the square peg into a round hole type thing. Like we're all trying our hardest, but really at the end of the day, it's going to be, it's going to be a handful of people that are going to see the value that are going to try their best and get what they can out of it. And likely the listeners that you have are going to be those types of people. So thankful to have all those people here and willing to listen to us talk shit for an hour and a half (laughs) or forever for however long this is going to continue because I don't care how long. I remember when I presented this topic to you, you were like, wow, this, this, this could get very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. That the gradations of conversation that this could go down is, is, is something else. But honestly, man, I think we really hit, hit the high points today. Is there anything you kind of want to add to, to wrap it up for people when it comes to being aware of what's necessary within a program to, either address new body parts or just even be efficient from a movement pattern standpoint that you think we haven't touched on already, or even just as like an overview synopsis. Yeah. Um, something, something is to be said for giving credit where credit is due in the fact that just because something doesn't appear complicated doesn't mean that it's simplistic. Okay. There's elegance and simplicity if it's done right. And that's something that just generally doesn't get understood at like writ large, people don't get just because of the fact that if there's a missing piece of the base knowledge that we function from, from beyond, from behind the spreadsheet, from behind the lecture, from, you know, behind the computer, uh, a webcam, there's a basis that we're pulling knowledge from. There's a basis that we're pulling the application from all those things are unspoken for the most part. We may give some lines of logic that are going to make sense when read or said to somebody that are going to somewhat place them in a direction of understanding what we're trying to do. But it's not adequate to what it really is that we pulled out to say. It's a small percentage of the real base that we took that logic from to apply it. Okay, so looking at just looking at it, this is another Jordan shallowism, looking at a program to the outsider that doesn't know, it should be exercise of sets and reps. That's what it should look like, okay? That's where you start, but then what you don't see, unless you're sitting behind the Excel spreadsheet and you're the one building it, is there's a reason why all these things are in the order that they are. There's a reason I have these sets and rep schemes. There's a reason I've set these tempos. There's a reason I've given you this cue and not that cue. 
there's a reason for the preparation work that I had you do or did not have you do. All these things matter. Doing even, again, with the credit where credit is due, some old-timey bodybuilding standards, some old movements that we have all decided arbitrarily and memified and thrown away have a lot of merit if you know what you're doing with them and you understand from base principles what those actual movement patterns require and what they do. So not to go down a full rabbit hole on this one, but like something just as simple as doing a lat pulldown correctly, like a unilateral single arm lat pulldown and not allowing your hand to pronate in the top. That detail, that tiny little smidge of a detail where the entire rest of the movement pattern could be identical, but that tiny little thing is a difference between it being an effective and non-effective movement pattern and whether or not it actually has carryover to literally every other exercises that requires control of the shoulder. And that's a function of glenohumeral depression with the lat, control with the rhomboid, control with the serratus, your ability to articulate those motions, you having mobility and access into the position in the first place, you not having to compensate by turning your rib cage to realign your uh, scapula humeral joint for you to actually do those things that you're trying to accomplish with the movement pattern in the first place. There's a reason why people have problems with pressing. There's a, there's a reason why you put your hand overhead and almost nobody can do a nobody. Yeah. Nobody can do this. Nobody can do this without their hands turning. Nobody can put their hand overhead and do a lat pull down and not have their hand proning or have their arm try to go out in front of them or their shoulder go into protraction and elevation in all of these things. Now, all those things can get brushed completely over and have absolutely no attention paid to them if you don't know what you're looking at. But those simple movements, this elegance and simplicity, you doing that movement correctly and you fighting yourself from what your body wants you to do because you lack the mobility and stability to do it correctly within this externally stabilized and well-tracked environment where you have control, you can put yourself into a position where you have to experience that position. You can force yourself there safely under an appropriate load to allow to do so. That eccentric loading into that pattern, into that position itself will allow you greater access and control every time that you're in that analogous position again, as long as you continue to load it and gain resilience there. You keep on loading it and gaining control. You load it in different directions under different parameters. You gain ability. Those simple things, a tricep overhead extension done properly, a single arm lat pull down done properly. You're doing in a row for your upper back properly. All these things that you could just look at a program and go, well, that's all some basic shit. I've only seen that on every single bodybuilding.com program I've ever seen. It just maybe has a couple extra fancy bells and whistles here and there that, I mean, people writing bodybuilding.com programs probably didn't understand. But looking at it, somebody that doesn't know shouldn't know. But the person that's actually writing it, it's incumbent on them to understand these things and be able to program in a way that you're not just looking at output from the person on a singular day. You're looking at, instead of looking at, oh, this is, I went off on Instagram I think it was yesterday, two days ago, or something like that with a post on this too. Looking at something that is biomechanically perfect and choosing only from a pool of exercises that you can claim are biomechanically perfect in whatever narrow sense you've decided to make that arbitration. 
is useless for long-term programming. Sure, doing a standing dumbbell bicep curl, maybe not biomechanically perfect, but does it have another use? Does it have something else as a component of it that actually allows you to do something else better? Yes, it does. A tricep dumbbell overhead extension. Is that just an elbow destroyer? No, as it shouldn't be if you have done it right. But things like that are going to be things that you can look at and go, well, maybe there is a better option. Maybe I could set up a cable machine and, you know, just try to align it to the sun just perfectly and get my cable cuffs out and then squeeze my lacrosse ball in my hand for the irradiation effect to just perfectly make this work and then turn my elbow like 17 degrees towards the West. And here we go. And that's the perfect tricep extension for output on that day, depending on whatever, how much fatigue you've built and how much fitness you have in your mesocycle at that specific day of the week or how many rest days you've had or how many meals you've had in that day, however detailed you want to be, doesn't matter. doesn't matter because you can decide that over a period of however many rotations, however many days in a cycle, however many specific things that you're trying to do and fit into your program, look at it as an overall of what it's giving you over time. Your output on that specific day matters, yes. But what is it giving you as a result of having done that output effectively and accurately on that day? Does it give you the ability to do something else better the next day? or the day after that, or the week after that, or the rotation after that. On this exercise, that exercise, whatever it is, whether or not you know it, is that programming going to be additive to your general overall output over a broad time? Yes or no? Now, does that necessarily require every single movement pattern that you've chosen has been decided as the biomechanically perfect exercise, the one exercise that you're not doing for huge biceps? It doesn't have to be that movement that you do every single time. It's, it's looking, it's again, going into the deep dark ocean with a pen light and deciding that the singular thing that you saw in the greatest steps you've ever traveled is the one thing that exists and the only thing that matters because you thought that you went deep enough to have a deep understanding of what you're seeing, but missing everything else around you. There's more to it. The deeper you go, the more, you, the more it's required of you, you take a step back and look around or else you're going to get lost. And the further you keep on reaffirming to yourself that you're going in the right direction while only looking at what you can see with your pen light, the worse off you're going to be in the long run because you're going to end up being a meme yourself. And memes usually aren't that huge or that developed or that strong. So this is where we end up. Which is, I think, a, a fantastic finishing point is that all of this logic and understanding of, of, of that we walked through today in movement pattern is, is built around progressing sessions into the next one and progressing over a longer period of time and being able to capably do that um, and not just, not just only focus on the output of one day, but on the output of the program as a whole and where we can get our bodies from point A to point B within a training block or a mess cycle or however you want to quantify it. But making sure that session to session sequences into each other in order to get the outcome that's expected rather than lining up the sun appropriately to your elbows so that you can 
do a search. Um, Pulling out the sundial for the tricep extensions. <laughs> or the goniometer for um, pack squats. Yeah. Um, so, Nick, man, this has been a fantastic conversation. If you have anything that you're involved in with right now that you kind of want to let the audience know, let them know now. It's your time to pawn yourself a little bit. Uh, yeah. Pay the bill section, right? Yeah. So for any supplement needs you have, uh, hit up Raw Nutrition, uh, Revive. Use my code GLOF. That'll get you 20% off. So aside from that, right now, working with Team Camp Jansen, uh, official Team Camp Jansen coach, we're always running coaching. So if you're looking to have more, you know, more of me in your life, a little bit more of listening to me rant on 10, 15 minute personalized voice notes. Going on. Oh, that's me. You're good. Keep going. All right. We're good. So if you need a little bit more of hearing me rant about random things, mechanics, nutrition, anything else and otherwise, hit me up, send me an email, send me a DM. We can get you started, get you coaching and we can get you on team camp Jansen, sub team, team Gloff and have you a part of the part of the team camp Jansen culture. So, well, Nick, it's, it's, it's been a fantastic time recording and in this episode. And I hope that y'all got a lot out of this. If y'all have any follow-up questions, guys, just DM either me or, or Nick, I will be happy to answer them. Um, pretty much you can follow both of us on Instagram and, and, and follow a lot of this thought process that we had. Um, it does come across in a lot of the posts that we put up. So, um, yep. Y'all keep staying muscular nerds, and uh, I hope that y'all I hope that y'all learn today. <laughs>